Hey, welcome to the daily podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. Alan Cross is going to join us to discuss how one of the world's biggest bands plans to play at your local drive-in. And Global's Ottawa Bureau Chief, Mercedes Stevenson, is going to talk about rumors that are swirling that Trudeau is eyeing at replacing Finance Minister Bill Morneau with Mark Carney, the former head of the Bank of Canada. We'll find out if there's any truth to that. But first, let's start with the Russian announcement that they have a workable COVID-19 vaccine. We reached out to Dr. Amir Adaran, who's a law professor and immunologist at the University of Ottawa, for his insight into the topic. Good morning, Kelly. Apparently, scores of Russian business and political elite have already been given access to this experimental vaccine as early as April. And um, Russia's now racing to get civilians involved in this. This is before a phase three uh, clinical trial. What's the purpose, just to get us kind of on the same page here, of having a a phase three clinical trial? What happens then and how long does it normally last for? Well, even even ahead of that, Kelly, what Russia is doing here is they're putting a vaccine to use in their general population and they haven't published a single clinical trial, stage one, two, or three. In, in a journal that opens it up to other scientists to review whether what they're planning works or is safe. This is taking place completely under a Soviet-like cloak of secrecy. And, you know, what normally takes place and what's taking place for the vaccines that will be used in the West, but maybe not Russia, is a real phase three trial that tests whether the vaccine is able to protect you against COVID and whether in in a group of thousands of people, so a pretty large uh, study group, there are dangerous side effects. Near as we can tell, the Russians are skipping this. Oh, okay. So they're just going to guinea pig their people and see if there's side effects later on. Cross your fingers and hope for the best. That's pretty much what it is. I mean, here in the West, you know, here in the West, we have a very careful process of doing phase one, phase two, phase three trials, each building up from the last. And the goal is to make sure that the vaccine both works and is safe, which is why I have no time or respect for people in Canada who say they're anti-vaccine. Those people mm-hmm. are just fools. I'll be as blunt as that. But if I was in Russia, I'd probably right. be anti-vaccine myself because... The Russians do not do that careful testing. And you say they're turning their population into guinea pigs, and, and you know, that's exactly right. And mm. in the West, we have standards for the protection of human subjects and research. The Russians don't have that. So they're guinea pigs. That's what the Russian people are. How many vaccines fail in stage three clinical trials? Do we have any idea? Plenty. I mean, it, it, it's less common for a vaccine to fail in the third phase than it is for drugs. Drugs fail in the third phase all the time. Vaccines less so because just the way that the second phase works gives you a bit more information about vaccines than it does for drugs. So the vaccine survives the second phase. And so far, there are six of them, I believe, that have. It has pretty good odds of getting through the third phase. 
Okay, and, and is the fir- third phase's role, is it to see how long the vaccine will last? Because, I mean, that's a big question mark. You know, people keep saying, oh, we'll get a vaccine. But the question mark is, and it's very similar to, you know, the antibodies and people that have had COVID. How long do those last for? And that's the major question mark. Well, the answer is long enough. And we don't really need to worry about it terribly. The reason I say that is a few reasons. First of all, it's not the phase three trial that tests whether the immunity is long lasting from a vaccine. A phase three trial can't do that. It's going to take years to have that answer in full. But what we now know, being a half year into COVID, is the reports of people getting reinfected after having been sick, they're just not there. So it does seem that there is some protective immunity. And it's not okay. as simple as antibodies. That's just one branch of the immune system. Right, because there's, there's T cells as well that, that right. we've spoken about. Can I just get back to the vaccine for a second? Because I kind of took us off track. Um, I was just reading uh, in one of the reports here um, that you had mentioned that there are several uh, COVID-19 vaccines that are now in stage three clinical trials. So that is hopeful. Um, there are uh, experts that say, you know, why are all the corporations following the rules? And, and Russia doesn't. You know, the rules are uh, for conducting clinical trials are written in blood. They can't be violated. How important, can you speak to how important it is as an uh, immunologist, um, h- how important it is to follow the rules and um, and and if it, it then, um, the, what's the potential harm of failure? Is it giving anti-vaxxers a potentially believable, credible storyline? Well, about as credible as the earth being flat and the moon made of green cheese. Mm. That's how credible anti-vaxxers are. I'm sorry if I'm offending. No, 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 no. Hey, listen, you're not offending me. I'm with you on that. I just want to know if if this Russian um, vaccine that they are touting right now is the place where it can backfire is if it fails, then anti-vaxxers go, aha, see, we told you that wasn't good because look at them. I mean, well, and then you know people what? start to look at it and go, oh, well, well, they might have a point. That did happen. Well, OK, so that's that's kind of a foolish argument for anti-vaxxers to make. If what they want sure. to say is an improperly tested vaccine in Russia devised in secrecy in, in the old Soviet chemical and biological weapons establishment, because that's who's made it turns out to be dangerous than one made in Canada or in Europe or the U.S. to the world's highest standards must be dangerous too. Anyone who says that doesn't have two neurons to rub together to start a fire. I'm sorry. I mean, that is that is just such a deceitful way of reasoning. And it's what the anti-vaxxers do, Kelly. You're sure. Right. That's exactly and, what they do. Yeah. You know, we've, we've got a culture, a sick culture of anti-vaccination in this country that's threatening the health of others. Because they pretend that if they don't get vaccinated, it's their free choice. Well, not really when their kid happens to be going to school. Then their choice endangers others. And so I think, you know, we as Canadians believe in a common good. We need to understand that anti-vaccination is about the most un-Canadian thing you could do. Right. You know, and you're not going to hear any argument from me. So at, at the end of the day... Why is this announcement from Russia very dangerous when it comes to uh, COVID-19 and moving towards a vaccine? Well, I don't think it's all that dangerous. I think it's more dumb. I, you know, I think it's, okay. it's kind of the, the, 
you know, the, the signal that a dying empire is sending out that it's still great. I mean, it, you know, it's comical. They decided to name the vaccine Sputnik after the first um, satellite, the launch in the 1950s, which was Russian. They're just trying to recapture past greatness here. And you know what? The vaccine is based on such a, a copycat technology. The Russians probably stole the technology um, that it may end up working. And if it does work, they'll get their propaganda coup. But that's not the point. The point is they're turning their population into guinea pigs for an untested vaccine. And that should tell you how low Vladimir Putin and the Russians are. I I, uh, I appreciate, as always, your candor. Uh, you know, uh, it's actually refreshing to talk to a guest that will, you know, challenge something I say and say, no, that's a ridiculous statement. And I, you know, although it was an anti-vaxxer statement, type of, you know, um, I was coming from an anti-vaxxer's point of view, uh, not that I am one. I do appreciate it. And as always, I appreciate your expertise. It's just fascinating having you on the show and it's a, a breath of fresh air. Thanks so much. Kelly, thanks for the, thanks for putting in a good fight on the anti-vaxxers. I know, <laughs> I know where you're coming from. Have a good day. I appreciate it. All right. It is clear that our prime minister has not only an optics problem right now with the Wee scandal and uh, the scandal right now that is heating up over the rent relief program and the association uh, with his chief of staff, Katie Telford, and her husband. He's VP, I think, of the corporation that is administering the rent relief. So they've got an optics problem. There could be an ethics problem. Some would say Kelly could be. Come on. Uh, He's had two ethics violations already, and he's being investigated right now along with the finance minister, uh, Bill Morneau. But this is an interesting story. It's making headlines. It kind of uh, caught my eye yesterday in the afternoon. But apparently there's problems uh, between he and the finance minister. Yeah, the future of the Canadian finance minister appears to be uncertain after their clashes with Trudeau. Here to get the the story out of Ottawa, we're joined by our Global Ottawa Bureau Chief, Mercedes Stevenson. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Thanks for having me. So you're a lot closer to this than I am, but the timing seems interesting. And uh, I wonder how much of it is to um, try and change the optics here. Uh, one of the names that's being thrown about as a replacement for our uh, finance minister, Bill Morneau, could be Mark Carney, who got us through the uh, 2007 banking crash. Can we talk about where the problem is between Morneau and Trudeau, who seems so close up until now? Yeah, so I, I want to be careful that we say um, this is certainly a story that's being talked about in Ottawa. We've not been able to independently verify whether there are problems between Trudeau and Morneau, and they are in fact clashing. Uh, but there's no question that the government has an optics problem when it comes to Bill Morneau. And it's not the first time the government's had an optics problem when it comes to Bill Morneau, that Bill Morneau has basically self-inflicted. Uh, and it was interesting because, of course, we found out that Bill Morneau has family members that work at WE, yet he sat around the cabinet table um, and discussed having we deliver this contract. He didn't disclose that, it seems, at the cabinet table. Um, and you have Mr. Trudeau testifying that he had sort of some internal red flags that he overrode on it. We haven't had that kind of a sense from Bill Morneau. And so I'm curious to know, I would love to be a fly on the wall on whether those two were talking about whether that should have been disclosed at the cabinet table and whether in fact there is a problem there or a perceived problem there. Um, and so, you know, Bill 
Morneau and whether or not he can hold on to his job have been a big topic of conversation around here. Mark Carney has always been highly desirable to the Liberal Party, not just to replace potentially Bill Morneau, uh, but many see him as the successor to Justin Trudeau. Um, he mm. is somebody who is uh, seen as, as leaning Liberal, but he led the Bank of Canada through a very difficult time. He is widely respected by a lot of business people in Canada, a lot of economists. Uh, he, of course, has been leading the Bank of England and is currently a UN Special Envoy on Climate Change. Um, and the fact that the Bank of England actually tapped a Canadian to come and run their bank says something about just how respected Mark Carney is internationally. He's also somebody who's very likable. He's hugely charismatic, which matters in politics. Uh, he's somebody where when he's in a room, you will see people wanting to come over and talk to him. He's very engaging. And of course, now he and his family are moving back to Ottawa. They had lived here for years. Uh, they, he and his wife do have school-aged children who will be coming back here for high school because they consider it home. But of course, that also locates him perfectly uh, to potentially make the jump over into a government role. And there's no question that he would be a big asset politically for the Liberal Party. I think it was, jeez, uh, I don't know if it was BNN or one of the, uh, uh, I think it was Bloomberg actually, that was saying that Mark Carney on Monday has been um, acting as an informal advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the federal government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Do you have anything on that? Any insider information? Yeah, so I was speaking to some uh, folks who work in PMO, and they said, yes, uh, you know, as as many of us have thought for a long time, he does talk to Mark Carney. Um, now, the, what they seem to be referencing is is an informal relationship, somebody uh, who they talk and bounce ideas off of. Obviously, he would not be able to have been paying him uh, a consultant fee or something when he was the governor of the Bank of England. But they are two people who have known each other for a long time. Um, certainly, the Prime Minister respects Mr. Morrow's opinion, but I think it's significant that, you know, once he's out of the Bank of Canada and able to talk uh, and, and, and sorry, pardon me, the Bank of England and was able to talk to Mr. Trudeau, that those have been ongoing conversations on background. It speaks to his level of potential involvement uh, with the Liberals in terms of the Liberals hoping to bring him into their tent and, and as well to the degree of respect that they have for his opinions and policies. So I, I think that that's another good hint uh, that there could be a very interesting future for Mark Carney when he comes back to Canada. So with all the scandals going on right now in the Trudeau government and, you know, fingers uh, pointed directly at Morneau and Trudeau with the uh, We Charity scandal and the investigations into that, I mean, it, it, something's got to give for the Liberals. It doesn't look good. It's not a good look on the Prime Minister. So if you broke up that pair, that might be the way to go. If you don't want to get rid of uh, Trudeau, Trudeau doesn't want to step down, um, you replace Morneau. How difficult, you know, when we hear Mark Carney's name being bandied about, the former head of both the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England, a lot of credibility. How difficult is him? Is he to move into Morneau's position? Because he's not really, uh, he hasn't won a parliamentary seat. Yeah, I mean, he, he can't. He can't, he can't just <laughs> become the finance minister overnight. He would have to run. Uh, he could certainly come in as a senior advisor to the party. They could look at running him. The optics of having somebody running Canada's purse strings who has not been elected by the Canadian people in a minority government situation, uh, that would be a real issue. Uh, of no, there is an mm -hmm. MP in Toronto, Michael Levitt 
who is stepping down from his position. Uh, he says that's he? for family reasons. He is in the GTA. So oh, well, that, that would potentially provide a seat. When did he <laughs> so decide we, to uh, <laughs> step down, Mercedes? I want to say within the last week or just over a week ago, I can't give you an exact timeline on that. It's it's Uh within about the last uh, 10 days. So is that connected or he's going to run the Simon Wiesenthal Center on Human Rights. It's a very prestigious uh, and important Mm -hmm. position. It's not like he's just suddenly dropping out. Is it connected? Is it not connected? Let me tell you, lots of people of Ottawa are wondering that. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, if Mr. Carney's family is living in Ottawa, though, he'd need an Ottawa seat. So lots of questions there and and you know does he really want to run in a by-election we don't know all those whether he wants to run at all or not i mean this is sort of a good what you're seeing here is what we call trial ballooning it's when they start to leak little bits to the media to see how this guy's going to be received and then you can get a read from there on what you want to do next although i can't imagine a world where they would be too worried about the public's reception to mark carney he is a very well-liked figure in canada yeah, I, I just think, it, it, you know, the other names that are being thrown around that could uh, replace Morneau, uh, Christiane Freeland and Francois-Philippe Champagne, uh, Mark Carney, to me, uh, seems like the, the best choice, although he's not in government right now, he doesn't have a seat, uh, because what it does is, is it brings some sort of credibility to that Trudeau government, and boy, do they ever need it. I mean, Christiane Freeland, uh, of course, she has a lot of credibility, but... Uh, she's great in her position right now. She's done a lot of good work there. Uh, do you want to move her out of that position when she's, you know, doing such a great job? What you need is to start working on all of your bench strength again. Yeah, and you know, there there are um, some other very strong performers in cabinet. Francois-Philippe Champagne, uh, you know, has worked with major international banking and financing organizations uh, like the World Economic Forum. You have people like Carla Qualtro, who's always been seen as a very solid performer who understands, she's a lawyer, but she understands money. Um, I can't see them moving Christian Freeland. That mm-hmm. file is just too important to make her deputy prime minister. Uh, if they put her into finance, they would be demoted her and she right now is juggling everything from the relationship with the Americans on NAFTA and the border uh, to the provinces and and you know she's really built a strong rapport uh, with Doug Ford and with Jason Kenney who are not easy premiers for a liberal cabinet minister to build that up with they both made it very clear they have a lot of respect for her they like her uh, and the government's been able to I think blunt a lot of criticism by having her on that file uh, because she is someone who can relate uh, to people outside of the party better in some cases than some members of cabinet who are you know up to their eyeballs in the kool-aid so to pull her would be very high risk i think with a potentially low reward but the question of whether or not morno can stay on uh, or if someone has to fall on their sword we shall see i mean remember in snc lavalin it was jerry butts um and mm-hmm. he was seen as indispensable by many in the prime minister's office but he was the one who had to go for them to be able to say see uh you know essentially we we've, we've given our pound of flesh I really appreciate your time, Mercedes. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Drive-ins are gaining in popularity. We were talking about how they're, they have been um, instrumental to bringing back the summer blockbuster. And when I say bringing it back, I mean bringing it back, like going back to the old favorites, you know, the Back to the Futures, Jaws, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you name it. Kids are enjoying it outside with their parents again as part of the drive-in experience. But that's not the only thing that is uh, getting a little lift from the drive-in happens to also be 
the music industry. Here to talk about it, our friend Alan Cross from a Journal of Musical Things and the Ongoing History of New Music. Welcome to the show. Good to have you along, Alan, as always. Oh, thank you. I was actually at a drive in a couple of weeks ago for the first time since, I think, 1981. And What I, did you uh, see? Uh, it was a Canadian film called The Cuban, starring Lou Gossett Jr. And uh, there was a, a Canadian premiere at the uh, Five Drive-In in Oakville. And it was a lovely Tuesday night. And it was it was a cool thing. I, I remember why I, I liked drive-ins. And I just haven't, I haven't been to one in a long time. So uh, can I presume then you and Mary Ellen got a lot closer than you have in a while? Is, no, or is I, that I too about, much information? No, she doesn't stay up until after dark. So no, it was just Okay. Me. Okay, so there you are at the drive-in. Do so you have to bring your own food? Would you Would you choose? Did you bring some a, a pack of nibs? Would you? No, no. They had, they had their diner open. You could line up, you know, respectfully distance and and really? get uh, whatever. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, you know, Oakville was in stage three at the time, and so you just have to be very careful. And you know, uh, it, everybody seemed to be seemed to be fine with the whole thing. And so here's with, my question: with, It's a Tuesday night. Was it full? Yes. It was certainly three quarters full. Again, it was a Canadian premiere, and it was uh, it was for the mm-hmm. Alzheimer's Society of Canada. So there was a certain there was a charitable component to it. But uh, you know, people seem to really really enjoy it, and uh, we've seen some drive-in gigs, concerts uh, do quite well. Um, Garth Brooks made a ton of money with a pre-recorded show that went out to drive-ins all across North America. Uh, Gwen Stefani and Blake Shelton did one that did very well. Uh, there was a guy from Denmark who I guess pioneered the whole thing back in either late May or June, got a bunch of cars out to that one. And now tonight and tomorrow, July talk is doing something at the Stardust drive in uh, North of Newmarket. And if, you know, they've been talking about this for quite some time. There's a, a, an event in Vancouver or outside of Vancouver towards the end of the month. And then just announced uh, yesterday, Metallica, has reserved some drive-in space at dozens and dozens and dozens of places across North America for I, what seems to be, you know, a, essentially a pay-per-view event. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting because it's part of this Encore Drive-In uh, Night series, and it is screening August 29th, hundreds of drive-ins and outdoor theaters uh, across the United States and here in Canada. Alan, is there some sort of charitable component to this? Because tickets are going to cost 115 per vehicle. To me, that sounds a bit ridiculous, especially in a pandemic. Well, I don't know. You know, you can get up to you're allowed up to six people per per vehicle. So when you divide it that way, it's not so bad. If it's just you, $115 is, is kind of a lot to watch Metallica on an outdoor screen with mosquitoes. Uh, but, you know, uh, economies of scale will work for them. And yet I think there is a, a charitable component to it. You also get some uh, free downloads to uh, uh, an upcoming Metallica album. So it, it's, you know, if, if you're that kind of a fan, you'll pay it. Yeah, you, the upcoming Metallica album that you're talking about is S&M 2. It was recorded with the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra, and you know your audience is getting older when. <laughs> yeah, this was a big thing back in the 60s and early 70s where you had a rock band uh, recording with the Symphony Orchestra. You can think of you know, bands like Deep Purple and um, the Moody Blues and Procol Harum and a few others. Uh, but, yeah, you know, it's 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 it's... It's different, <laughs> and and the first album S and M one was was quite successful. So uh, we'll see. Uh, I, I'm I'm not. I did a poll um, over the last twenty four hours about people going to these things, 
And uh, a bunch of people said, yeah, you know, I'm kind of interested in it, but we'll see. Uh, More people said, yeah, this is a pretty cool idea. It's better than nothing. But the majority of people said, "Ah, no, this just isn't my thing. Uh, I'm not going to be going to see concerts at drive-ins, at least not right now. Yeah, it's not the same as, you know, July Talk might be interesting, but the whole idea of going to see a concert film for me, it's not the same experience as seeing a live concert, although it was shot live. Uh, It just, it misses some of the spontaneity, all of the spontaneity, and it also misses my, um, you know, me being an active participant in what's going on on stage. You You know, yeah, you're not on stage, but you're not passive either. No, the uh, City View Drive-In uh, on Polson Avenue um, has had live shows, like people actually on stage and people just sitting in their cars. Um, a tribe called Red and Monster Truck did, did shows that way. The July talk shows are the band on stage at a drive-in, I guess, with everything being projected on the big screen. So they're actually there playing live. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been the case in, the, in a couple of other, other uh, events as well. But the bigger ones, uh, like Garth Brooks, that was um, done in advance in an empty theater, in, in an empty stadium. And I think the Gwen Stefani Blake Shelton one was too, but I stand to be corrected on that. So there are two types. There's where you actually go and, and go to a concert, but instead of going inside a venue, you sit in your car and watch the band from the stage. Or there's the, you know, the pay-per-view kind that we, we just talked about. And in both situations, you have to have a really great sound system in your car. Or well, it does help. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that uh, when, when I went to this movie a couple weeks ago, um, each of the screens, there were three screens in Oakville, and they each have their own low-power FM signal. So you, you put it on in your car, and most cars these days, even factory systems, are really, really quite good. And you, get, you hear everything. The, my big thing was it was, uh, you know, in mid-July, and the sun took a very long time to go down, so the screen was kind of washed out for, for a while until it got dark. But as we get closer to the fall, well, showtime starts earlier. Yeah, and so you can see, based on the people that came out to this on Tuesday, that drive-ins um, actually aren't going to do too poorly as we move into the colder weather, too. Because as long as you can, you know, wrap up and bundle up, we should be all right. Yeah, as long as, yeah, I mean, it's going to be bad. Well, the people who allow their windows to get fogged up aren't there to see the movie anyway. So we'll just leave them out of the uh, out of the equation. But, uh, the, the, you know, I, I saw some people that knew really what they were doing. They, they brought their SUVs, but they backed into their space, opened mm-hmm. the back, and then had, like, chairs where they could recline uh, in, in the boot of the, uh, the SUV. So, oh, that's very clever. Um, I have a car. I have a little sports car. And, and no matter how I parked, I had to crane my neck down because the roof line was, was so low. <laughs> So I had to kind of lean over so I could see the screen. I saw the movie, uh, you know, on my side. But hilarious, uh, yeah, you know. But it 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 brings you know, drive-in theaters were going extinct. There used to be uh, in, when I grew up in Winnipeg, there were four drive-ins. They were on the on the compass points of the city, east, west, north, south. And you know, any time of the week, they people they would be filled. And now there's I don't think there's any now. And and. Mm-hmm. Uh, we every once in a while we would run across an article saying, "Ah, oh, drive-in theaters—it's a thing of the past. People have home theaters at home; it's just not going to work." Uh, this is injecting new life into um, into uh, drive-ins, and and you know, for the foreseeable future, this may be one of the only ways that we get to see live music. 
Yeah, it's an, it's 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 certainly an interesting time, and it really shows how desperate we are for not only live music and and some sort of entertainment, but we're desperate for community. You know, oh, I was yeah. I was at Alan. I went and did something that it just seems like a normal event um, in past times. I just the went to get my time. haircut yesterday. Yeah, the before times. Went to get my haircut, and I you know had the mask on and everything, and she colored it as well. So she's washing out the color. And I said, oh, my God, like no one has touched me since my like other than my husband in six months, like no human contact. And I was just in heaven because of the fact that, you know, we are creatures that we need people around us. And just thinking about how well we've done with something so unusual that we've never experienced before. And that is, you know, staying away from people and being, you know, nervous of people even coming close to us, let alone touching us. It's pretty remarkable. I find myself watching TV and seeing crowd scenes with people not wearing masks. And I, I, and I flinch going, oh, oh yeah. wait a second. Yeah. Uh, and same thing. I was out uh, on the weekend, you know, shopping. Everybody's wearing, you know, wherever I've gone, it's been almost pretty much 100% compliance. Um, I was at Costco the other day, and again, you know, everybody's wearing masks, but everybody is keeping their distance from everybody else, and nobody wants to, you know, even even if you bump carts with somebody at the grocery store, it's like, ah, unclean, unclean, you know? It's, yeah. it's, just, it's just so, it's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's... It, Either you're doing the sideway look at someone, uh, you know, kind of like, what are you doing out of the mask? Or you're smiling behind your mask with the like squinty eyes trying to let them know, oh, no, you go first. It's very confusing. We are living in a new reality that I, I you know, I, I just have to commend us all for doing so well. We're at thir- the new COVID numbers, Alan, in the province are 33 today. 33? 33. Oh, that, that's, a, that's incredible. And you look at what's happening in the dumpster fire south of the border. Uh, where we're wearing a mask has become this political statement. It's like what you know. What we should do, Kelly, is we should we should organize uh, a trip down to the Peace Bridge or the Rainbow Bridge, and we just stand there and scream at America to get their act together. Because, yeah, but they wouldn't hear us because we'd all be wearing masks. Uh, well, that's a that's a very good point. Yes. Well, Alan. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for, uh, you know, letting us know about the latest as far as uh, Metallica goes and other concert news. I appreciate just chatting with you. I expect to see more of these things as we go forward because it's one of the very few options we have. I, um, I, I think you're right on the money there, mister. All right. Well, we'll talk to you again soon. Alan Cross, the host of the ongoing history of new music. And of course, a uh, great blog, which if you haven't checked out, you should a journal of musical things. Well, that's it for the Kelly Cotrera podcast. Join me weekdays, nine till noon live on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.